Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today David G. Firth. He is tutor in Old Testament at Trinity College, Bristol. He's the author of many things. Uh, One book is Including the Stranger. Another book is a commentary on 1 and 2 Samuel. He has a new book entitled... Uh, Joshua, which is our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Firth. Thank you, Mark. Good to be here. All right. Now, you open by saying that the book of Joshua stands at a transitional point in the overall life of Israel. How so? Um, We are making the move from Israel as a people who have moved out of uh, Egypt. They have had the exodus, but the point of the exodus was always... Uh, to go into the promised land. Exodus leads to Isodus, going out so they can go in. Uh, That's an important transition. They are on the boundary, but they haven't gone in. Uh, Moses has just died. And in human terms, Moses has been the figure around which really everything has revolved. Uh, Aaron has died a little bit earlier, uh, so that Eliezer, his son, has taken over. But, you know, Joshua is Moses' assistant, but Moses was the person that when Israel needed to be let out of Egypt, he was the human who was there. When they were going through the wilderness, he was the one who dealt with God for them. When they were at Mount Sinai, it was Moses who goes up the mountain, not everybody else. Hmm. Um, it's Moses who's preached to them as it's recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses has died. So all the things that have been familiar for this generation, Moses, the wilderness, that's about to end as they enter the land. So it's a a significant transition in geography. It's a significant transition in terms of leadership. It's a significant transition about how they're going to live as the people of God. Uh, Before we get into the text proper, uh, give us the details of the date and authorship of the book of Joshua. Okay. Well, the book of Joshua uh, is anonymous. Um, So we have to respect that. It talks about Joshua, uh, and it's looking back on Joshua. So Joshua um, himself uh, dies at the end of the book, so it's unlikely that Joshua would have written the book uh, himself. Mm -hmm. And then we start looking at clues within the book, um, and for me the most important clue is that at a number of points through the book of Joshua – It has statements that says, such and such is true until this day. Now, the thing about those statements is they are true at the time that the book is written, 
Um, but some of those ceased to be true later in Israel's history. And so we can say, well, you know, it can't have been that late that it was written. Uh, and so we, we end up with a, a best guess. Um, and uh, my best guess is sometime around the period of Solomon, um, give or take a, a generation or two. Um, and the, the book of Joshua would have been very important then um, because you've got the, the breakdown between the northern and the southern kingdoms starting to emerge late in Solomon's reign. If it's slightly later and it's just after the division of the kingdoms, that's a, a really big issue about how is Israel going to understand itself historically if they are no longer one people? How does that happen? And that's where the book of Joshua, as talking about the history of Israel as the people of God, uh, who at one stage were either side of the Jordan, so they weren't quite as united as they might have been, that starts to become an important issue. So the author, uh, I think, is somebody living around about that period, who's very concerned that Israel has a historical understanding of who it is, so that they can face what appears to be a new challenge, which has arisen in their experience. Hmm. Now, you, you mentioned how Joshua fits into the story of Israel, this transitional point, but you also discuss how the book of Joshua fits into the canon of Scripture. What do you say there? Yes, Joshua, I, I describe it as a bridge text. Uh, it's the book that takes us from the Pentateuch to the rest of the story. And um, the Pentateuch is the beginning of the biblical story. It's not the, the beginning just because we happen to lay out our Bibles that way. We lay out our Bibles that way because it genuinely is the beginning of the story. Um, so the Pentateuch has told us uh, about uh, God's response to a world that has rebelled against him in Genesis. It's told us how God has covenanted through Abraham and then at Sinai and that this is part of his mission to bring creation back to himself. And Israel is prepared for that role within the Pentateuch, um, but we then have to move them into the land. Uh, and so we are moving into the opportunity where Israel is now going to start living out, successfully and not successfully, um, what it means to be faithful to God. So it, it, it's this important bridge that gets us forward. And, and also, therefore, when we read Joshua, we also go back to the Pentateuch and we realize that parts of the Pentateuch are anticipating Joshua, whilst Joshua then also prepares us for the rest of the story that uh, is told through the book of Judges, Samuel uh, and Kings, and, and which we encounter again in, in Chronicles. You mentioned the phrase faithful to God. Uh, you talk a lot about obedience. Is obedience the most prominent theme in the book of Joshua? It's it's certainly one of the most prominent themes. I think um, so, some elements, um, obedience, the nature of Israel and what the people of God is, um, I, I think they go so closely together that I'm not sure that you can extract one without the other. But obedience is very, very important within the book of Joshua. Um, Israel has to obey God. It has to trust God. Um, but obedience in Joshua also, I think, is fascinating because 
what tends to happen is that God lays out the the guidelines in which in which Israel is going to be obedient, but He leaves them space um, in which they work out what that looks like at any given point in time, so that uh, God gives Israel uh, a shape to what their life is going to be uh, as they reflect in the Pentateuch and as God speaks at various points within the book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but God knows that Israel is in a constantly changing world, so you can't lock everything down. And so Israel still has to also reflect. So, you know, why is Joshua in chapter one to, to meditate, to, to mull over, to ponder um, the book of the Torah? Um, well, because the book of the Torah, the book of the law, as it's traditionally translated, is giving an, a, a shape to Israel that lets them flourish. But it's a shape that knows that Israel is going to change. The world in which Israel lives is going to change. So the, the shape continues and always guides Israel a- accurately. But Israel then still has some, some scope in which they have to say, all right, how in this new setting do we work that out? So it is obedience but obedience to a, a shape rather than necessarily everything is here is X and that's what you do. And it has to be exactly that way forever. Hmm. You, you note strong parallels between Joshua and Jesus. You say that they actually go beyond the common typologies uh, that you find. What are those parallels? Well, it's not just in the name. So when we um, read in um the epistle to the Hebrews, for example, um, how uh, Jesus is the greater Joshua. Part of that, which if you if you can read Hebrews in Greek, you'll see is that, of course, the name Joshua and the name Jesus in Greek are exactly the same. Um, they both Jesus. And uh, I've never forgotten when I was a uh, theology student in Sydney, um, reading Hebrews in Greek for the first time and being dreadfully confused by why it was saying these things about Jesus, seemingly, until I realized that he was actually talking about Joshua. Um, But I also realized that the writer of the Hebrews knew what he was doing, and he wanted to get you confused the first time around. Um, But we see um, that, you know, one of the great themes of Hebrews, of course, is that Jesus is the one who is fully obedient in the way that no other was. So we we see this uh, pattern uh, that Joshua is is working out what obedience looks like but joshua is always struggling because knowing how to be fully obedient is is more of a of a challenge than we imagine Um, but jesus is the one who is fully obedient in the way that no other ever is Um, israel remains god's son within uh, the book of joshua and in deuteronomy but of course jesus is god's son in in a way that no one else uh, ever can be he is uniquely Um, God's son. So we have those elements. Um, There are also, I think, important um, themes in terms of how uh, the book of Joshua is preparing us to see how God's purpose is to reach all peoples and how in Jesus, of course, as we we see that great picture of worship in the book of Revelation uh, about every people, tribe, tongue and language who are there in in the worship of him. So some of these patterns work all the way across scripture. And of course, there are also parts um, within the Bible as a whole where we we reflect on how the story of Joshua, uh, not just Joshua himself, but the story of Joshua, uh, is also pointing us to how God is reaching all nations, all peoples for himself. 
um, and we see this ultimately again in, in, in Jesus. So these elements, I think, uh, are kind of easily missed if we're not used to reading how this sto- these stories are told typically in the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, fundamental to the handling of power and governance in Joshua is the act of banning. You talk a lot about the act of banning. What is the meaning of banning in this text? Uh, well, well, this is uh, one of the great areas of debate and dispute in Old Testament studies. So um, it's not an area that is completely certain. Um, so I, I need to say that, although uh, I'm hoping for your, your listeners that we'll, we'll, we'll realize that the areas that are not completely certain are perhaps not as remote as sometimes might be thought. The, the idea of the ban is that something is given over completely to God. And now this has often been translated as you shall utterly destroy. Um, so, uh, you know, the NIV, I think it is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter seven, where we first encounter this in the Bible, um, says you shall utterly destroy the peoples who are there. Um, and it is certainly the case that something which is placed under the ban can be completely destroyed. But it's also the case um, that not everything which is placed under the ban is destroyed. So that we find uh, in uh, Leviticus 27, it talks about the ban there as well. And it talks about how you redeem things which were placed under the ban by which you pay something extra, including people. Um, Now, clearly they've not been destroyed because there's not much point in redeeming something which has been destroyed. Hmm. Um, So... We, we have this, this concept, which we do find in a number of ancient Near, ancient Near Eastern contexts. Um, so we find um, a Moabite text, actually, from, uh, I think it's about the 9th century, 8th century BC, which also talks about this, um, this concept. It's not uniquely Israelite. Um, and in fact, in uh, the Book of Kings, the Assyrians talk about uh, placing Israel under the ban. Um, so... I don't think it's completely destroy, and that uh, is really important thing to say, um, because otherwise, when we read the book of Joshua, if placing under the ban means everything is completely destroyed, then Israel is dreadfully disobedient. But if the ban is bringing something and giving it over entirely to God, so that you have no future claim to it, um, then I think Israel is obedient. And the ban in the book of Joshua we see is something which can be applied with varying degrees of severity as well. So at Jericho, um, everything is placed under the ban except for Rahab and her family. And in that instance, humans were put to death. Um, But we also see the metals, the precious metals, were not destroyed. They were put into the treasury of God. So we already see the division starting to hint there. But when we come to later instances, um, we see that Israel is actually able to take some of the spoil from some of those sites. So the site is still given over to God, but God permits Israel to take some of the spoil from those, uh, those sites. So the ban involves... Um, if you like, Israel accepting that they have no right themselves to determine what happens to that which is under the ban, that must belong to God and God alone makes that choice. Um, It can result in destruction, but it doesn't have to result 
in destruction. And sometimes God will release some of it back um, to Israel. And in fact, this this leads me to to think that um, when we uh, read Joshua, part of that bridge text between it and the Pentateuch is that you are meant to read Joshua and, and understand that that's how the ban works so that when you go, you can go back and read Deuteronomy and that will give you fresh insights into how you read Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 20, where this, this concept is most fully explored. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. The book starts with a dramatic moment, right? Entering the land. What, why, why begin there? Um, well, it begins there in part because uh, the book of Joshua sets itself very intentionally as the uh, immediate sex successor to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so uh, if you are familiar with uh, various novels where you finish one novel and you're waiting for the novelist to get the next one and the first page of the new novel should pick up where the last one ended off, um, that's kind of what we're doing in literary terms. The important difference here is this is not a novel, this is, this is history. Um, but it wants to immediately pick you up and say, right, you've just read Deuteronomy 34. If you haven't just read Deuteronomy 34, go back and read it again um, because you need to remember what happened in the death of Moses to then prepare you for what is about to happen to uh, Israel, for what is about to happen to Joshua at this particular point. So it's, it's very, very deliberately placing itself and saying, this is the next part of the story. Don't come in here if you don't know the preceding part of the story. If you do, remember what you've read. You're going to need that to make sense of everything that's going to happen uh, in the next 24 chapters. Right. You know, as they proceed to cross the Jordan uh, after uh, with Jericho, uh, what is the role or purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? Is, is this where Indiana Jones comes in to the story? Um, it, it's almost certainly the point where Indiana Jones does not come into the story. Um, in fact, I, I, I think it's pretty much precisely the point where Raiders of the Lost Ark is going to send you, I mean, it sends you down plenty of wrong tracks anyway, except for the scene in the marketplace where Indiana shoots the huge uh, soldier with a big sword, and that's David and Goliath okay. um, from 1 Samuel 17, um, or at least Steven Spielberg's version of that. Um, but otherwise, don't think of the Ark there. Um, the Ark has a number of functions within the Old Testament, um, but within the book of Joshua, it is a way of symbolizing that God is present with Israel. And uh, as they no longer have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, 
to lead them as happens in the wilderness, the ark actually starts to become a principal means by which God is going to guide Israel. They come to the uh, crossing of the Jordan and uh, the uh, crossing of the Jordan uh, happens at the time of spring when the uh, floodwaters have come down from Mount Hermon and what's normally a very crossable river uh, is in, in flood, so very difficult to cross. And it is the ark which goes before and establishes that God is present with them and God leads them to be able to cross uh, the Jordan into the land. The ark is also very important uh, at uh, Jericho uh, as a way of saying that God is present with Israel and helping them to overcome a form of battle for which they have no training. And then we have a, a final a major appearance of the ark in chapter 8, um, where Israel is to engage in a, a worship ceremony. This is the, the last part of chapter 8 from verse 30. Um, at near, just near Shechem, at Mount Ebal, in fulfillment of what's set out in Deuteronomy. And uh, at that point, we have the, the interesting scenario that it's both native-born Israelites and resident foreigners um, who have come to worship Yahweh, the Lord, who together um, show that God is present with them in the land um, as the ark is present there. So the ark has a number of roles within the Old Testament as a whole, and it's, it's probably good to say that different writers want to bring out a different part of that. And within Joshua, it's this sense of the ark is the visible way that Israel knows that God is continuing to lead them. Uh, and to be present with them, uh, which ultimately leads to them uh, setting up of the uh, tabernacle uh, at Shiloh. And, and why must there be a mass circumcision? Uh, well, the mass circumcision in uh, chapter 5 of Joshua um, refers to the fact that the uh, people born in the wilderness hadn't um, practiced circumcision. So, Technically, under Israel's law, um, any Israelite male who was not circumcised was to be cut off from the people of Israel. Uh, now, uh, it's not entirely clear what that means, but it certainly would seem that you no longer enjoy the benefit of being a part of Israel. And there is also the very particular restriction that no uh, male could, could celebrate Passover who was not circumcised. So you have this, this very clear statement that this is the way that Israel lives within the covenant relationship that was established with Abraham. Um, and it's the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, for which circumcision is established in Genesis 17, that sets the boundaries of the land that Israel is about to claim. So that's an important factor. The second part of it is that we are approaching the date of the Passover. So we know as we're reading Joshua that Passover is coming close uh, because uh, when the spies uh, or the scouts, as I prefer to call them, because they remind me of Boy Scouts rather than spies, hmm. go to uh, Jericho, um, she hides them under the wild flax that's starting to be harvested at the very earliest part of uh, spring. Um, and we know that as Israel is uh, crossing uh, the Jordan uh, in chapter 4 from verse 19 that we read it was on the 10th day of the first month that the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal. Uh, this is the day before the day of preparation for Passover. 
So, uh, and also the, the timing of the flood also puts us, uh, of the Jordan puts us in that period. So the book has been preparing us very carefully for the fact that Israel is going to celebrate Passover. So first and foremost, Israel has to be prepared to celebrate Passover. They are not prepared because the wilderness generation has in fact not followed God as they are supposed to do. First and foremost, God stops them and says, you can't do that. But secondly, uh, and, and I'll, I'll get to this one quickly, Israel has to realize that they're not going to take the land on their own strength. And there is no more effective way of teaching your army that they can't fight in their own strength than having all the males circumcised at that point. Hmm. Now, David, Joshua orders his men not to loot the city, to reserve its riches for God. Uh, as as you say, why why can't of of course some of them disobey? Why can't they all just just behave? Um, why can't why can't they take that stuff and just behave like any ordinary soldiers? You mean? No, no. Why can't they just follow orders? Ah, uh, well, because that's all of us, isn't it? Really, that's that's the story. That's the story of the Bible as a whole. Um, you know, you can eat from any tree in the fruit of the garden, but not the one in the middle. Well, that's the one that we decide that we want. Um, and, you know, part of the reason we learn about Achan is to let us know that um, despite all that God is doing, Israel, as with us today, can still find new and spectacular ways to get things fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and and how, how, does, uh, how does Joshua have to rectify those errors? What does he have to do? Well, the um, the situation, first of all, is that uh, they have captured Jericho successfully, um, but they then go on to the town of Ai, or Ai as some people want to pronounce it, mm -hmm. um, and Israel is so confident that this is just some little place we can take this because, by definition, God must be on our side. So, first of all, they have to discover that God doesn't fight for them automatically. He only fights for people who are actually committed to him. Um, and that's that's the point at which uh, Joshua has to pray in uh, and discover what's gone wrong. And I, I love Joshua's prayer in Joshua chapter 7 because everything he says to God about what's happened is wrong, but God still recognizes what he's wanting to do um, and responds, even though it's not directly what Joshua thinks is going on, but God's, God's going to set him right. So we have to identify who has caused the sin, how uh, Achan has looted some of the goods from uh, Jericho, uh, and we have this process where um, they are taken by lot. What I find fascinating there also is that actually, although we, most English translations say it was taken by lot, um, the Hebrew actually uses a verb that we normally use to describe capture in warfare, um, because in a sense, what we are seeing in Joshua is that God is at war against sin, whether that sin is in people outside Israel or that sin is in Israel, and God is, is showing them that they cannot assume that because they have the right genetic heritage that God will do the right, could do everything for them no matter what. They actually need to be living for him. So we have this process of the lot which goes through uh, the tribe and the clan and the father's house yep. until ultimately Achan is is taken. Uh, things do get awfully violent after that. Very violent book. Uh, but you call the next episode a renewal. What is renewed after that? 
Uh, you're talking about in Joshua uh, chapter 8. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, this is where we have that uh, covenant renewal on Mount Ebal. Um, and this is an interesting little story because I think most people would feel that if you read through to um, the end of uh, the Achan story in Joshua 8, 29 and went straight to the Gibeonites that you wouldn't almost you'd almost not miss this one and yet the book of Joshua stops and records this and, and we can tell actually that it's a story from later in Israel's time um, because Mount Ebal is near Shechem well to the north of anywhere that Israel has got to by this stage but we need to stop and to hear the ways that Israel has gone wrong mm-hmm. and then remind ourselves that as a as a people, and this people who now includes the foreigners in various ways, um, that's as they commit themselves once again to the life of worship and service that God had called them to in Deuteronomy, um, that they are able once more to live out their vocation, to live out their calling of what it is to live and serve God. And how do the other tribes respond to what happened at Jericho and Ai? Well, the uh, the peoples who were within the nation uh, start to see opportunities for thinking, well, hang on, Israel couldn't succeed at AI. Maybe we can have the uh, same thing. And we, we start to get this uh, phrase uh, that occurs in chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, about the various kings and so on. And there are two basic responses One response is found uh, only amongst the uh, people of Gibeon, which is actually a collection of uh, a few towns, um, but uh, nonetheless, Gibeon is the major one that the others uh, work with. Uh, And they decide that they don't want to oppose Israel. So um, we're never really told why they don't. And we have to realize that one of the things that the book of Joshua does is that it sometimes sets you up for something and it leaves you hanging for a couple of chapters before it tells you what what really was going on. Mm -hmm. So with the Gibeonites, if you just read the story in chapter nine, you might think Israel gets it completely wrong. They were fooled. And it's only when you get to the end of chapter 11 that you're told that uh, the Lord had hardened the hearts of the others to fight Israel, but not these Hivites at Gibeon because they were different in some way. Um, So, you know, God was actually doing something in their lives, um, but you need to overcome the shock of that. So they they take the approach of saying, we don't want to oppose Israel. Their their technique for doing that, of trying to trick Israel, is clearly not uh, there to be something as a model to encourage us in, in things to do. Um, neither is Israel's failure really to consult the Lord in what's going on. None of that is presented to us as, as the way to sort things out. And yet God is doing something which is which is remarkable. What wisdom should we, because you, you, you emphasize so much the idea of land through this book, from the beginning, the entrance to the land, until this moment where we have the distribution of lands. What wisdom should we draw from Joshua's acts of distributing the land? Well, the distribution of the land is the point where Israel is to remember that even though they appear to have everything they want, they still have to go back and say, but how is God the Lord in this situation? How do we truly understand that God is king? Um, How do we trust him uh, and realize that 
uh, it remains his land. And, and this is always the temptation for Israel is to uh, imagine that uh, this is our land. But the book of Joshua says, no, it's, it's, it's the Lord's land. It's God's land. We are, to use the phrase from Leviticus, we are his tenants on it. And we are therefore stewards to manage what God has given to us. And I think that radically reshapes Israel's view. It's not that somehow this has been given to us. It's ours to do what we want with. This is God's, and we use it to glorify him. The book is Joshua. Uh, Professor, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.